I'm Nick Terzo, and you're listening to The Radical. In this week's show, we take a look at the origin story of Warner Brothers Records, now known to all of us as Warner Music. Some say from the 60s to the 90s, Warner and Reprise were the most artist-centric labels ever to have existed. Home to such groundbreaking artists as James Taylor, Paul Simon, Neil Young, Prince, Jimi Hendrix, and Madonna. Mo Austin, Lenny Warnaker, and Joe Smith led a bunch of eccentric staffers to make Warners one of the greatest entertainment business models ever. We will discuss Peter Ames Carlin's new book, Sonic Boom, which explores the three decades of Warner's business dominance and abilities to catapult artists to their greatest heights. My guest this week is New York Times bestselling author, Peter Ames Carlin. Coming up, my conversation with Peter Ames Carlin. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Nick. It's great to be here. Um, so I just read your new book, Sonic Boom, um, which is the history and the origin story of Warner Brothers Records, mm-hmm. um, focused on both uh, Mo Austin, who's a genius, and uh, Lenny Warnaker, his co-conspirator, who's another genius, um, who I adore both these men. So it was fantastic for me to be able to dig into this book. Um, I'm curious, what uh, sparked your interest that you felt like this is something you needed to kind of explore and kind of, what made you curious? Well, I had been aware of of Warner's um, being a different kind of record company going back to when I was a really little kid. In uh, I was in 1969, my dad came home with one of the Lost Leader uh, double disc um, compilation records they put out. And uh, I was six at the time, but I remember I was a huge Beatle fan even then. So I, I was used to listening to records and pop records. And, um, and this was not Beatles music by any stretch. I mean, it was a lot of it was brilliant, but it was all over the map. I mean, this was this record had everyone on it from from uh, from Neil Young to Van Dyke Parks to the Fugs to to like Joan, uh, Joni Mitchell and, and uh, you know, just this wide, and Peter, Paul and Mary and Theo Bacall. I mean, this wide variety of people. I think Ella Fitzgerald was on it and Fats Domino. I mean, and, um, but it was the liner notes that were just hysterically funny. And, and, and also it just radiated this kind of counterculture vibe that you didn't get from other major corporations. And, um, you know, and, and that was part of part of the persona that that had been developed um, while the company was changing, while they were developing their sort of counterculture hippie sort of uh, roster. Their ad man, um, Stan Cornyn, had created this very, very funky counterculture voice. And uh, and I just remember this part of the liner notes where he was where they're actually promoting the other records in the Lost Leader thing, you know, $2 for two full records of stuff. And, um, and I remember there was part of it where he said, like, you know, you know, just in case you're skeptical of corporate record companies as well, you should be, you should. And it was like, whoa, he's like copying to the fact that, you know, he was saying, like, talking, like, we're not 100% benevolent. 
You know, the idea here is that you're going to buy this record for cheap and then you'll get turned on to these artists and buy the rest of their records for full price. And it was like, you know, and then, you know, as I got older and, you know, my tastes, you know, matured and, 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 and broadened, you know, I, I, every time I would look at my record collection, I would realize that an enormous percentage of all my favorite artists were on Warner's or on some one of their uh, associated labels, like, you know, if not reprise, then Sire Records or, or, you know, or even like Capricorn or Island or places like that. And, um, and eventually, you know, you look back and you realize it's like this, you know, every era had these enormously successful artists who were also like the best artists around. You know, and like James Taylor, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, um, and then like Fleetwood Mac and, uh, you know, and then Prince and then the replacements on Sire and, and R.E.M. and Talking Heads. And it was just like era after era after era where like all the greatest bands were were on Warner's or Warner's affiliated labels. Um, and so I always had the sense that this is a special place. And then in 2013, I was working on this book about Paul Simon. Uh, that was my previous book. And I went to talk to Lenny Warrenker in Burbank. And, uh, you know, and I knew Lenny's name and, and he had produced or co-produced dozens and dozens of my favorite records. And, um, and then when I uh, went to see him, and, you know, and, and, and he had been president of the label for a dozen years during some of their most successful periods. He's like a legend in the music industry, but he was working out of this tiny little like basement office with like a light well and no room because all this crap was all over the place. And he explained to me how, you know, he had left the company with Mo in the mid nineties, but then, you know, and then worked at DreamWorks for five or six years. And then they, you know, then they left that company or sold it and and um sold their interest in it and then he was retired but then eventually tom wally a sub you know hired asked him to come back they wanted to do a sort of reformation of the, the the golden era of warner brothers and lenny explained to me that he he said he would come back under one condition and that was that he could have his first job back which was basically being an you know at a junior a and r guy he didn't want to have any seniority. He didn't want to have any executive authority. He was saying like all that corporate bullshit. I don't want anything to do with any of that. I just want to make records, you know, and because um, he had been a producer to start out with. And, and then he explained how when he came in on his first day, they started taking him to this big executive office on the big executive office floor. And he said he stopped and he said, wait a minute. He said, weren't you listening? I don't want to be up here. I want to be with the kids in the A&R department, you know, and they took, and they were like, well, we have one office down there. And it was this crappy little place where I found him and he was happy. You know, I mean, he couldn't have been happier. And, and that just made me feel like this, this idea I'd had as a kid about this counterculture world and how it was going to, you know, this hippie world was going to take over and, and everything was going to be cooler and funkier and, and Warner brothers was going to be like the creative epicenter of that. That actually happened. You know, it was like that actually did happen. And not only for a few of the mossy hippie years, but for nearly 30 years. Right. And what's interesting, and it's hard to convey this in today's world or marketplace, um, 
you know, each of the labels kind of had their own brands. I mean, and there was a loyalty to those brands back then, you know, whether it was, mm-hmm. you know, Columbia where I worked and, you know, Big Red and uh, certainly had loyalists there too. So it was interesting that each one of these built their own cultures, um, even that the consumers mm-hmm. responded to, which today would be kind of unheard of. Yeah. Well, you know, Warner's was actually... Um, two labels that got woven together in 1963. The first Warner Brothers Records, which was founded by Jack Warner at the movie company, who was just was tired of, of, of like movie actors like Tab Hunter having hit singles and like and suddenly he's they're under contract to him, but suddenly they're making a mint for dot records. And uh, he couldn't tolerate that. So they, he got him to start this record label. And at first, you know, it was like no rock and roll. Like it was, you know, you found found a level a, a label in 1958 when rock and roll was taking over, and you go no rock and roll. And two years later, Frank Sinatra started Reprise Records, sort of as a boutique record for his favorite artists, jazz artists, and you know, and sort of you know the Rat Pack, yeah, Rat Packy type of guys and everything, yeah. saloon singers. And, uh, you know, and he had a lot of cool artists and he was incredibly popular. But again, you know, Frank hated rock and roll, um, but he didn't hate it as much as he hated going broke. And so after a couple of years, um, then they eventually, you know, he began to sort of crack open the door a little bit. And he let his, you know, the sort of the day to day manager, Mo, then a young executive named Mo Austin. And uh, to sort of let him bring out a couple rock and roll type stuff. And the labels, they sold, you know, uh, Jack Warner, in order to get Sinatra uh, under contract as an actor, agreed to buy his money losing record company. And that's when Warner and Reprise got knitted together. But, but, but you know, even then, Mo was very, very set on and the management of Warner Brothers were smart and allowed him to do it was to say, look, we need to keep these labels separate because because you guys have a very specific identity and Reprise has a very specific identity. And if we keep them separate, we'll both appeal to different audiences and theoretically sell more records that way. And I know there was a lot of players in this in the book, too. Um, was it ever a challenge for you kind of like, oh, you know, this is turning almost into a Mo Austin, you know, biography and you know what I mean? And, and, or is this a Warner brothers story or, I mean, you know what I mean? The two were so entwined. Yeah. What was that challenge like for you to be able to tell the story based with that kind of going on the entwined personality? That's how I always wanted to do it. You know, the challenge in the beginning was, you know, the fact that, um, and I heard this from a bunch of people, like when I first began to reach out to these former executives and to, you know, and, and try to sweet talk them into talking to me. And there was a lot of interest in doing it, but everybody, you know, every, because there hadn't really been a real major book about Warners that hadn't come out of Warners because there was the book that Warren Zanes did that came out for the 50th anniversary of the label. That uh, was great, but it was, you know, an in-house project and it had a lot of great art in it and had, you know, Warren wrote some stuff and then he worked with other people who would, you know, artists and producers and executives and they, and, you know, they put this thing together. But in terms of a real sort of outside boots on the ground type of, you know, researched biography that hadn't happened yet, and they had done so much special stuff, it was kind of like, how does this not exist? And, and a lot of the executives felt the same way, but everybody was very concerned. They didn't want to, you know, step up. They didn't 
want to step on Mo Austin's toes. And Mo was very opposed to, you know, definitely he never liked to cooperate with, with writers and stuff. He didn't give a lot of, a lot of interviews, you know, unlike people like Clive Davis and other, uh, you know, other executives who were a little bit more sort of engaged with their own p- profile. Mo never had a publicist. He turned, refused almost every interview request and he never, ever talked about his life. But I found him at the right time, you know, when, you know, and I think people began to, you know, I, I, I met some of these folks and talked to them and I apparently made a good impression because they began to call Mo and say, we'd like to talk to this guy. We think it's about time for this to happen. And, you know, and Mo was like, oh, well, you know, and eventually, you know, uh, his son got involved. Michael Austin is also brilliant. And Michael, I think, strong armed him into saying, dad, you should at least meet this guy. So we went out to lunch and we, you know, he sort of got what I was trying to do. And, and he was super cool and fun to talk to. And, and then six months, seven months after that, um, he said, okay, I'll cooperate. And then it took about eight or nine months after that to finally get him to sit down and take time to be interviewed. But I always knew that it was the personalities the people that ran the company that were going to eventually, that ultimately were going to be in some ways the center of the book because, because organizations are groups of people, you know, I mean, in a record company is defined by its artists and, but also the people who run the place. And especially in a place that was such a, you know, an artist friendly, music friendly, sort of passion filled place that did things so innovatively and so creatively it became clear to me that this was really going to be a, a book about the people who ran this place and what it was like to work in those offices and to be a part of that organization. Um, you know, the woman who was, I had a, a handful of editors on this book for a, a bunch of reasons that we don't need to go into here. But, um, uh, and, and finally, the, the woman who was, who was the editor for most of the creative, you know, sort of envisioning of the book said at one point, she said, because, it, it, you know, generally I write, music books, you know, and write about musicians and artists and stuff. And she said something that had been on my mind and I wasn't quite certain how to break it to them because, you know, they knew me as a music writer. And she goes, this book is really more of a business book than a music book, isn't it? And I was like, exactly. She's like, that's great. And I said, you're great. You totally get it. (laughs) And so, and that's what this became. It was a book about you know, but it was about art, you know, uh, record company executives and business people who understood that in order to run a the best way to run a successful art company is to allow is to make the business people think like artists, not make the artists think like business people. And that was a completely counterintuitive way of going about it back then and remains counterintuitive. And the fact that Warner was the most massively successful company for decades um, didn't convince anyone at any other company that they should try to do it that way. You know, it's amazing how stubborn sort of the corporate, the corporate culture mindset can be. Right. And how did you, um, I mean, you got into it a little bit, but I mean, so you conceptualized doing this. Um, does a publisher come on board? Do you start your lobbying campaign so you know you have access before a publisher comes in? What, what was the process on this particular book? Well, in this one, I spent a lot more time working on the proposal than I ordinarily do because I needed to, um, you know, I had this idea 
And, um, you know, wow, I'd really love to do this book about Warner Brothers Records. Like, I know there's a terrific history here and there's all these great artists and everyone kind of comes together. It's like this union of amazing personalities, everybody from Frank Sinatra to Jack Warner to, you know, uh, guys like Mo Austin and Lenny Warrenker and Joe Smith. We can't forget Joe Smith. I mean, that guy was a huge, huge part of the envisioning of, of you know, the golden age of the company. Uh, and, well, and Steve Ross, I mean, being such, well, the, I mean, yeah. what a sugar daddy. He, I mean, he really what a support system. So. It, well, exactly. Because Steve Ross is like, I mean, the rarest among, you know, these corporate uh, CEO types, because he knew that he didn't know everything. And he especially knew that he didn't know how to run record companies. So he just made sure he had the smartest guys, you know, the most successful people. And, and then he said, just go ahead and do what you do, you know? And if you don't want to talk to me all year, that's fine. We'll have one conversation about, about numbers. And if that goes well, you don't have to talk to me for a whole other year, you know, just do what you do. But, you know, I mean, but then it turned out he was super smart and, 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 and a good resource for those guys. And so, um, so I, you know, and so I spent a lot of time and I, I reached out to a bunch of the former Warners people and kind of built up my network and, did a lot of preliminary interviews. And I think I sat down with, with Lanny again. Um, and, you know, there's always a little bit of skepticism and shyness. Well, you know, what kind of thing is this going to be? And, you know, do we really want to do this? Because obviously if you're a successful, well-known person, you know, the media, and you don't have anything immediately to sell, uh, talking to the media is, is usually more trouble than it's worth. So, uh, you know, nothing but, but bad news can occur, except, you know, I could hypnotize them a little bit and, you know, and they, you know, or I come with some decent referrals from people. Yeah. He's not a complete asshole. So, uh, you know, and so slowly, but surely, you know, and then I write this proposal and my agent sends it around and, and, you know, and the people, you know, Holt, uh, Henry Holt and co who did my, had done my previous book. So I had existing relationships with them and they were like, yeah, sure. Fine. Go, you know, do this, go for it. Right. right. And you had, I mean, um, you did a Paul Simon book and then you had the Bruce Springsteen book, right. Which was very well received, right. As kind of a real yeah. thorough <laughs> telling yeah. of Bruce's world. So, and is that interesting to you? Cause I mean, in there somewhere there had to be some Columbia record or record company themes, in there somewhere. I didn't read it. Right. So I'm just assuming. Sure. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because you were kind of in each opposing camp to some degree, Warner yeah. Brothers and then Columbia. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, but there was a lot of sort of back and forth in their stories because they were such, you know, heated um, competitors for so long. And so like writing about Paul Simon, you know, you under, I began to understand, you know, Walter Yetnikoff's sort of extremely competitive relationship with Warner Brothers and how he, you know, in the mid seventies, he started his, uh, you know, what did he called it? The, I don't know. Do we swear on this podcast? He started his, his fuck the bunny campaign, you know, cause he was so outraged that they had finally surpassed Columbia in sales. And, um, and, and his first project was to, was to poach James Taylor from, from Warner's and, and James Taylor had been like one of their real major, major sellers in the first half of the seventies. And, uh, you know, and, and that was tough for them, but then 
a year later, you know, less than a year later, you know, Walter was, it was time for Paul Simon to redo, you know, to, to extend his contract. But, you know, and he had been nothing but successful for, for Columbia the entire time he'd been associated with them. And, uh, but Walter just didn't like him personally. And so they were going at it like cats and dogs. And, uh, and so, you know, Mo, um, Mo Austin and, and, and Lenny Wonker were like, you know, Paul Simon is exactly our type of artist. He's really smart. You know, they'd met each other, you know, there was a lot of mutual admiration. And, uh, so Mo, you know, and then when Walter got into it with, uh, with, with, with Paul, Paul's then manager lawyer, uh, rang up, you know, Mo had already made a, you know, sort of made an approach to Paul who had said, I'm a Columbia guy. I always have been, you know, I probably always will be. But then he really got into a big, you know, knockdown drag out with Walter. And then the, the lawyer, Mike Tannen called and said, you know, I think you might want to try again, Mo. And so, Mo, you know, and then like it took about 48 hours and he made an offer and Paul accepted it and bam, you know, payback as they say is a bitch. Uh, <laughs> and then Paul went over to Warner's and, you know, and had his incredible later career renaissance with Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints and, you know, and a whole bunch of great records that he did. That's awesome. So I was hoping you could address a couple of things. One is for people listening and they should go get this book and read it because it is a fascinating moment in time. And it is somewhat like a business book too, because it's about culture and any business nowadays that's successful has to have a culture yeah. that appeals to their customers. So talk to us a little bit about the craziness of the culture there, at least early on when it was unbridled culture. Yeah. And secondly, talk about maybe some of the innovations that Warner did versus like some of the other companies out there um, on how they dealt with artists. Well, Mo Austin and Joe Smith, Mo um, were in the 66, 1967 were kind of the sort of, um, Mo was basically running uh, Reprise Records and Joe Smith was running Warner Brothers Records. And they were the, basically the same company, but two different labels, you know. So they each had like three or four unique employees. You know, there was the, the, like the, the day-to-day president who they just called like the company manager or something. And that person had a secretary and an assistant who also had a secretary. But other than that, all the other you know, A&R and all, you know, and promotions and all the front office and back office office stuff was the same company. But um, they began in around, you know, in about in the mid 60s or so, they began to crack open the door a little bit and let them bring in rock and roll artists. And the first one who was really successful for them uh, came in through uh, Mo at Reprise, and that was the Kinks. You know, because they had a deal, a, a distribution deal with a, a label in in the UK um, uh, called Pie, and and Mo noticed that the Kings had this single that was leaping up the charts in the summer of 1964, and that was "You Really Got Me." So he worked a deal where they would they agreed to distribute it in the US, and it became a smash hit. And they had like three, four smash singles in a row, like in the second half of 1964. Uh, and then by 1966, they, they suddenly have way more leeway. And within the space of a few weeks in the fall of 66, Joe went up to San Francisco and signed the Grateful Dead. And Mo, you know, developed this, was reading the English 
music papers and, and became aware of this guy, Jimi Hendrix, who was this wild guitar player who, who only had one single out. But what Mo was noticing was all these reports of these shows that Hendrix was doing. And when Hendrix gave a concert, it would be attended by, say, all four Beatles and Mick and Keith from the Stones and Eric Clapton. And he was like, why are all the biggest stars of English rock and roll going to see this one guy? Like, this guy must have something going on. So he signed Hendrix. Um, and then in the, uh, the first half of 67, or in 67, they put out those records. The Grateful Dead didn't do very well, but Hendrix sold, I think, 3 million copies of his first record by the end of that year. And, you know, and at the same time, then there's the Monterey Pop Festival and the entire music industry suddenly gets hip to psychedelic music and everything. And, and uh, right after that, Mo, you know, now having the authority to sign anyone, you know, he and Joe to sign anyone they want, he went down to the A&R guys and he gave, he made the sort of mission statement that changed everything for that company. And he told the A&R staff, he said, look, we need to stop trying to make hit records. Let's just make good records and turn those into hits. And he went to Lenny Warrenker, among you know others, and said, you know, the, the young guys in the AR staff and said, find me the coolest artists. And I don't care if they if they have hit songs or not. And so Lenny went out and brought in Randy Newman, who he'd grown up with. And uh, you know, and in very quick succession, they had Captain Beefheart and Neil Young and uh, uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, the Fugs out of New York and Tiny Tim and freaky, freaky artists, you know, and, and by and large, you know, a lot of these people didn't seem like they would, you know, they didn't sound like anything that was on the top 40. But what Mo and Joe also realized was that top, the top 40 AM radio and, you know, wasn't going to be the be all and end all of pop music anymore because they understood that this generation of baby boomers who had been teeny boppers in the, you know, the early sixties were growing up and they had graduated high school and they were in college or they were out of college. And not only were they way more sophisticated than music fans had ever been before, but that they were going to, you know, they were starting to work. And when you start to work, you start having money to spend. And when you have money to spend, you buy shit that you like. And, you know, in the music industry, they'd always assume that when these kids get more sophisticated, they're just going to start listening to Sinatra and cool jazz artists and everything. But what Mo understood is, no, they're not. They're just going to want to listen to more sophisticated rock and roll music. So those were the artists they brought in. And then they were patient with them. They, they signed people with the understanding that you can make any kind of record you want to make and we're going to support you. We're going to put this thing out. And if it's not a hit, that's okay. The next one will be a hit maybe, or maybe it'll take you more records than that to make a hit. But if you're making records that are good and you're growing an audience slowly, but surely, and you're, you're touring and you have a core group of people who are following you, the idea they had was we're going to, we're going to stick with you and let you grow. And our assumption is going to be that once you have a catalog of albums and you start to connect with people, you're going to develop an audience that's going to be enormously loyal and are going to go back and buy the earlier records. You know? And eventually, over time, we're going to have this, 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 this deep catalog of albums that are going to, be, uh, that are going to sell year after year after year. You know? And it was like nobody had, had thought about it that way. 
except for people like, you know, Mo had come up through Verve Records. That was a very sort of a niche jazz label that had all the best jazz artists. And so his idea was to just, let's do this in rock and roll. And it worked perfectly, you know, and nobody is, you know, nobody imagined, nobody else in the industry imagined that that was something that was going to happen. You know, and at the same time, culturally, he began to hire younger and younger people to work at the company. So instead of these professionals who had been, you know, done a great job in the company, you know, in the industry for years and years, those guys began to kind of shuffle out. And he brought in like 21 year old people, 22 year old people and not music industry people. He liked to hire teachers. He just hired smart people. And he said, okay, why don't you work here and figure out how this job has always been done and then find a new way to do it. You know, and his, he had these, you know, these kind of slogans came down through the years, like, and Mo's favorite thing to say is why do it their way? You know, come up with a new way to promote records, come up with a new way to advertise records. You know, and one of the major things was the persona of the company and Stan Cornyn, who had been a liner note writer, sort of the editorial director, or, you know, whatever that was, um, they hired him to be the ad man, largely because he hated advertising and had never written an ad before. And so what he figured out was it's like, well, let's come up with an entire new, entirely new voice. You know, let's appeal directly to music, you know, to, to music buyers and speak to them in their language. And so he developed this series of full page ads that were the, like almost like absurdist comedy about the music industry, um, making fun of the artists, making fun of the company itself and and selling things in the softest sell imaginable to the point where it almost seemed like he was ripping into the artist. Like, for instance, the uh, excuse me. The uh, the um, the uh, uh, the ad for Randy Newman's first record um, was, uh, uh, you know, was a, he would do these ads that were full page ads and he'd put them in like alternative magazines like Rolling Stone or 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 the uh, uh, underground newspapers in all these cities because you could buy that advertising really cheaply. And um, he uh, wrote this ad for the Randy Newman record that says uh, basically uh, the headline was once you get used to it, his voice is really something, you know, and it was in a big picture of Randy. And then this essay sort of saying like, okay, this guy's got a weird vice voice and he writes these strange songs, but all these artists think he's the greatest. And, you know, and it talks about this and the reviews have been fantastic. And Van Dyke Parks, his first record, uh, his first album was called Song Cycle that came out in 19, late 67. And it was a very avant-garde piece of work. It's electronic and weird and modern classical and folk and all this stuff sort of rolled into one. And it got these amazing reviews and people were calling it the album of the year. Um, and that was in 1967 when also, you know, the other one of the other albums that came out that year was Sgt. Pepper. You know, it's like not a bad year to be called the album of the year but they couldn't give the record away. I mean, it sold like south of 10,000 copies. And so Stan wrote this ad after it had been out for a few months. And the headline was how we lost $35,509.53 on the quote album of the year, open parentheses, damn it, close parentheses, you know, or he did like an ad for uh, the Grateful Dead. It was like the, the pig pen, uh, what was it? The pig pen lookalike contest. 
you know, send in pictures of your friends who look like pig pen, you know, the freakiest member of, of the Grateful Dead, you know, and that my favorite line in that ad is at the very bottom where he says, but please don't send in the actual people. We got our own problems, you know. And so it's like people, people began to write fan letters to the advertising department at Warner's because they loved the ads so much. You know, and meanwhile, the, the people who all those young people working at Warner's in the offices were just like you couldn't tell the difference between them and the artists because they were all hippie freaks. These young hippie freaks who hung out together, you know, the artists used to, if they were around town and weren't recording or weren't touring, people like Neil Young used to come and hang out in the offices and just to bullshit with the A&R people and the execs and listen to records and smoke weed and talk about music and parties and where they're going to go tonight. And they all hung out together. It was, you know, an amazing little world they had there. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, look, they had a great run, especially as long as the California sound kind of kept them going through the seventies and stuff, but then they kind of, kind of that mid seventies to kind of 80 thing kind of had a little relapse there and uh, kind of weren't catching the trends of what was going on. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that a little? I mean, unfortunately they had the money that they could acquire maybe a company or two that were in the space, but can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, that was another part of Mo's strategy, um, which was basically like, if we're, you know, we have our A and R team and we have our guys and we have our strength, but if there's like, a, a, like a subculture where music is coming out of someplace like the deep South, you know, you got Capricorn records, this independent label, and they've got the Allman brothers and they've got these other Southern artists. It's like, well, we don't really know that, but you know, but, but we could just buy Capricorn or do a distribution deal with them. And suddenly, you know, we're, you know, we're in the Allman brothers business, you know, and um, they completely miss the sort of punk new wave scene coming out of New York. But um, but uh, Seymour Stein didn't miss it, and he had Sire Records. It was an independent label, and he had all these big artists, but he didn't have a lot of money, and he didn't have the greatest distribution. And so Mo did a deal with Seymour. It's like, why don't we you know, distribute Sire? And then a couple of years later, they did a deal to buy it outright. And so now you know, this company that had missed Punk and New Wave, well, guess what? Now they're in, the business, they're in business with the talking heads. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and then Seymour signed Madonna and, you know, and then the replacements and all these really cool bands in the eighties. Um, and so it was like, you know, success built upon the success and yeah, they, you know, and then they began to hire people to, you know, other people to bring into Warners and reprise to sort of expand their purview a little bit. And so, you know, but it's difficult, you know, your hip, you can be really hip and define hipness for maybe five years. And then, and then that, you know, the, 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 the revolutionaries become the institution, you know, and rock and roll by and large isn't all, you know, tends to resist institution and, and, you know, people are looking for the next, the next radical thing. The thing I was surprised at knowing both men, um, was when you sat down with Mo for those 20 hours or whatever that you guys spent together. Um, I don't know where you were in the writing process at that point, but what surprised me is his kind of contrition about how he treated Seymour, yeah. which I didn't know anything really about. I just thought that was a perfectly great relationship. And I was a little, <laughs> no. I was a little, no, I was definitely surprised that, that yeah. Mo had taken kind of an aggressive stance with Seymour. 
Well, Seymour was in some ways like the anti-Mo. You know, Mo is Mo is very cool. You know, he's a very sort of uh, intellectual character. He's very, um, uh, you know, he, he's 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 very kind of cool. He doesn't sh yell. You know, he gets pissed off, but he doesn't yell. You know, he finds other ways to express it. And and um, and you know, and for all that, Mo is is like this 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 real this hip guy, really sweet, really warm. Um, he was also a real hard ass businessman, you know, by his own estimation, by everyone's estimation. It was like somebody said, you know, Randy Newman said that trying to do a contract, and they loved Randy Newman, but and they had him on the label forever. And he was he grew up with Lenny; they were best friends from the time they were toddlers. You know, but he said trying to work, trying to negotiate a contract with those executives at Warner was like talking to mortgage bankers. You know, somebody said to me the other day, he said, trying to negotiate with those guys at Warner's, it was like they would take the skin off of you, you know, because Mo would get a number in his head and he wasn't going to budge. Um, and, you know, he liked to do things in a particular way. He didn't like hysteria. He didn't like this kind of craziness. And Seymour was crazy, you know, and in some, time, in some ways, the best possible way. But he was like this ball of, of, of fire rolling around and he would sign, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different artists. But the thing is, he also had great instincts. And so some of these artists that he would sign would be, oh, I don't know, Madonna, you know, great call, Seymour, you know, or he signed the Talking Heads and he signed all these people out of CBGBs and dance artists and people that Mo and the people in, in Burbank at Warner's didn't know existed. But, you know, they did this deal to buy Sire and then, you know, th then the 80s happened and Sire brings in like the hugest artists into, into you know, into the Warner world. And, and suddenly Seymour's got a little seller's remorse, you know, because he felt like he didn't do a good enough deal and he wanted to renegotiate the deal. And, and Mo was like, doesn't like to renegotiate deals. It's like, you know, you make a deal. We made a deal. This was the deal. We're going to stick with the deal, you know, and to his credit, he would do the same thing. You know, people would make bad deals and he'd be like, oh, but did you, you know, and somebody told a story where he gave away something, you know, in a completely different deal that he should never have done just because he got careless or made a dumb mistake. And Mo was like, he goes, oh my God, I can't believe he did it. He goes, well, it's okay, it's okay. He goes, I didn't sign anything, so we don't have, we can get out of it. Mo said, yeah, but did you agree to it? Did you shake on it? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, then that's the deal. So Mo, you know, it go, it went both ways. But 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 Seymour got under his skin in the worst way, and so Seymour began to demand all this money, and Mo was just like, no, like dug in, like you are not getting another dime out of me. And eventually Seymour went to, uh, to Steve Ross and pled his case. And Steve, who understood the value of keeping talent around, was like, okay, I'll fix this for you. And so he managed to work out something. And, you know, so Seymour very successfully did, did an end run. But there was a lot of enmity that he felt toward Mo, And, you know, that was, I guess, mutual. And, and then when Seymour's book came out a few years ago, he really went after Mo in a way that was both you know, that I think he overplayed his hand and he made some accusations and, and some assertions about Mo that just couldn't possibly be true um, and, and diminished him in a lot of ways that just, unfortunately, I think made Seymour look worse than, than Mo. But Mo got the message. And, and when I spoke to him, he was like, yeah, that's a big regret. Like I was, 
basically he said like I was an asshole to Seymour and I shouldn't have been. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And they definitely are opposing opposing personalities, that's for sure. Yeah. So I don't want to skip too far ahead here. Um, so let's talk about kind of the end. I mean, corporate America finally gets to Warner Brothers 2. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the most spectacular soap opera endings ever in the history. I mean, I was, all of us that did this for a living back then were, totally glued to like what was going on here with this Morgado guy and everything right. and the destruction of this, this label. Right. For no fascinating. Reason. Yeah. 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 Well, as David Geffen said uh, in his, in his way, in his very quiet, non-direct way, talking about this Bob Morgado, he goes, Bob Morgado is a fucking asshole. who didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And he ruined that company, you know, and it was like, all righty. So, um, um, but what happened was Steve Ross in the early eighties, there were some tough times at Warner's when, um, cause they had bought, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, the video game company from Japan, whose of course name is conveniently slipping out of my brain at the moment, you know, um, <laughs> at any rate, and they made a fortune with these guys. And, um, until suddenly the worm turned and very, very quickly, Nobody wanted those games anymore. The, you know, the wheel had turned. And suddenly, Warners was in huge financial trouble because their, the Golden Goose had just suddenly keeled over. And um, there was all this trouble. I think there was an attempt at a hostile takeover at some point. And uh, suddenly, they were in cutting mode. Like, we got to, got to, got to start cutting money. And one of the people he brought in to help him do it was this guy named Bob Morgado, who had been in politics to that point. He'd worked, I think, was a chief of staff for Governor Casey in New York. And, um, and one of the things Morgado did particularly well was sort of be an axe man, you know, come in, hatchet man, you know, come in and figure out who's got to go and walk into their office, you know, with a chainsaw and, you know, and walk out covered in blood. And a lot of people don't like doing that. You know, you don't like to end people's careers and some people are gifted at it. And he was one of those guys. And and so as Morgado began to rise in the company, um, he really, really wanted to get control over the music companies. And, one, and that was sacrosanct to Steve Ross. Um, and Steve held the line on that um, until he got sick in the early 90s and he got cancer. And as his energy waned and he had to spend more time fighting the disease, you know, he, you know, Bob Morgado's brief got bigger and bigger. And then when Steve Ross passed away in 92, I think the end of 92, then Morgado got control over the music part of the thing. And he really, really resented uh, uh, the amount of independence that Ross had always given the record company guys, you know, not just not just, you know, Mo and Lenny, but also Ahmed Erdogan at uh, at Atlantic and um and then uh, the other major label or two that they had at the time, uh, who's it's been a while since I've had all this mem- at the tip of my tongue. But um, and uh, and essentially, he wanted to disempower these guys because Ross had always given them that marching order of run your company the way you want to run your company. You know what you're doing, and I don't. You know, and as long as you're not losing money hand over fist, it's going to be great. You know. Um, He'd give like they bring him in. They bring in like Amit for the uh, financial meeting, and all the finance guys were there. And you know, and Atlantic would make a lot of money, and 
and, you know, or maybe, you know, they'd be happy or maybe they wouldn't have made as much money as they would have wished, but everybody was making money. So you couldn't get too upset. And then say, they'd say, well, what's your plan for this coming year, Amit? And Amit had a stock answer. He'd say, well, we're going to release some records. Some of them are going to be hits and some of them won't be, but we don't know which until we release them. So we'll let you know next year. And they'd be like, ah, he said, that's all I can tell you. So Morgado didn't want to hear that kind of shit from these guys. You know, he wanted to have control over them. But, you know, and guys who were as independent as Ahmet and as, you know, and as Mo, who was off on the West Coast, like way, way, way out from, you know, you couldn't just walk into his office and kick him around. And Mo was, you know, very, you know, very set on his independence and his contract said specifically nobody in his company, you know, I answer to Steve Ross, period. And that's it. You know, the CEO of the company, nobody else. And Morgato really, really resented that. And, and so when Steve passed away and Morgato sort of flexed his muscles and got control of the music thing, um, it was about a year or two before Mo's contract was, was due to be, you know, renegotiated and, and set forward. And, and basically um, what Morgato said was, you report, you, you're not just going to report to the CEO. You're going to like, and not just report to me, you're going to report to my underling who will report to me. And Mo is like, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was Doug Morris, right? Who he had brought yeah. in, right? And so Doug Morris, yeah. He'd yeah, elevated yeah. Doug up to that position. So Right, right, right. And so there was a lot of, it was just political maneuvering, essentially. And, um, and unfortunately, what happened was, uh, you know, Morgado offered him, you know, Mo's contract, but even the contract, if he had signed it, they were usually five-year terms. The deal was you'll be CEO for two and a half years, and then you're going to step back and you're going to, we're going to install the person who you anoint as your successor, who everybody knew was going to be Lenny Warrenker, you know, to be the chairman of the company. And then you'll be sort of like the chairman, you know, emeritus or whatever, you know, and then you'll be gone. And Mo is like, at the time, he was like in his 60s and good health and on top of his game. And the company was doing great. That was the thing that didn't make any sense. It's like these guys have made a fucking fortune year after year after year, just unfathomable amounts of profit, you know, with a few downturns here and there, but largely just astounding amounts of money. And um, it wasn't good enough. It's like, like what else? You, and, and, and I think what these corporate guys came to believe is that making hit records um, is just like making any successful product. You know, you figure out what the, the equation is and you solve for X and you just keep plugging X back in. But that's not how pop music works. You know, you have that gut thing, you know, and either you have it or you don't. And, um, and so he gave him this contract and Mo was like, didn't sign it and didn't sign it and didn't sign it. And finally he was just like, you know what? screw it, I'm gone, you know? And so at first they, they, were, they went to Lenny and they were like, will you please take over as the chairman? And Mo said, you should do that, be the chairman. And Lenny said, okay. But then he thought about it and then he was like, nah, I'm out of here too. And so it was like the defenestration of, of the king and the, you know, the two kings of this company for reasons. It, and it wasn't like, and the, the amazing thing was that the company wasn't struggling. The company was, kicking ass and hauling in unfathomable amounts of money. But this Morgado guy just figured like, well, anybody could do that, I guess. You know, how hard could it be? It's like harder than you think. 
And within months, you know, every, you know, artists began, wanted to leave, you know, uh, executives were, were, were bailing out. Um, it was, it was a nightmare. And within six months, um, uh, uh, Gerald Levin, who was then the CEO of, you know, the chair of, of, of Warner, you know, what was then time Warner called up Mo and, you know, invited him to come down to Mexico to hang out for a weekend or something. And just basically said, you need to come back. I want to hire you back. And uh, Mo was like, well, I'll never work for Margado. He's like, no problem. I'm firing him no matter what. But then they still couldn't work out the deal. And again, it came down to the question of autonomy. And, um, and that just wasn't going to work out. So that, you know, he and Lenny went over to Dream, you know, helped, you know, worked for, for Spielberg and Katzenberg and Geffen over at DreamWorks and created the DreamWorks label. Right. And that was the time, at, no matter what label you were at, including when I was at Sony in Columbia, that the MBAs kind of took over. Um, and it was right. a real struggle between us and our guys and the creative, because we'd give them fits and starts because we just, what we did had nothing to do with trying to fit into their modeling. Right. Um, and drive them crazy. Well, so. when I, when I used to be a, a TV critic, which I did for about almost 10 years, you know, it was always, I, I quickly learned that every, like virtually every fantastic, like, like, like culture, changing show like Seinfeld was an accident. Somebody in the corporate hierarchy fucked up and allowed this to happen. And had they been able to do it over again, they would never have allowed it. But so what happened is, you know, for whatever reason, they, you know, with Seinfeld, they let Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld do their own show and created and, and invented on their own without, and for whatever reason, there wasn't enough oversight for them to stop them from doing you know, coming up with their radical, no hugging, no learning, you know, ideas. And um, the show, you know, slowly, whatever, it became an enormous smash hit. And when it was an enormous smash hit, the lesson that the corporate guys got wasn't, we should let really smart, creative people do whatever they want. Their lesson was, you know what, what we need are four youngish urban people who hang out together and put them in a city. And that's what we'll do. And so Friends worked. That was the one that was, you know, the one that worked. But there was another dozen or dozen and a half similar shows that were just like, this is stupid. It looks like Seinfeld, but it is so not Seinfeld. And that's what, you know, you see that happening in the music industry. It's, the hard thing is to take a flyer to, you know, to actually say, hey, let's stop trying to make hits. Let's just make good stuff and turn those into hits. Precisely. You know. So before we wrap up here, you know, I'd like to always talk a little bit about creativity a bit. And now you're, as a writer, you've written, how many books is this now? Is this three or four for you? What is Oh, Lordy, that's more? actually, uh, I think the Warner's book was, let's see, the first one I did was about Brian Wilson. Then I did this book about Paul McCartney, then Springsteen, then Paul Simon. So the Warner's thing is was my fifth book. Fifth book. Okay, I was off by one. So. Yeah, close enough. So, so tell me like, what is like your process then as a writer? What keeps you engaged? How do you face it every day? That blank page. Um, and is it topically, I mean, is it always topically driven? Like, you know, an artist or personality driven or is there other writing that appeals to you? Well, I've done, you know, I've been at this writing professionally since the mid eighties. And so I, you know, when I was, I was a journalist and a freelance writer for a long time. And then I worked at People Magazine and just, you know, as a senior writer there, uh, then I was a TV critic for a lot of years and then wrote features and stuff. You know, I write about, you know, and I've gotten to the point now as, you know, as an elderly man, 
uh, it's been around for some time that, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position at the moment where I can kind of write about what I want to write about and, uh, you know, assuming there's an audience for it. And so, you know, it's like, it's like my next book, the, the thing I'm working on now is about REM, you know? And so it's like the calculus when I'm trying to come up with a book idea, something that's going to sell is like, well, whose music, you know, what artists or what group of people are interesting to me that I actually want to spend like the next year or two or three, just like being obsessed with. Um, and, you know, and is there like what's already out there about them? And is there space? Mm. And it's often really surprising to realize, oh, wait, no one's written a biography of Bruce Springsteen in more than 20 years. And Bruce Springsteen's a pretty popular artist. You know, uh, I, you know, there seems to be room for me to do something here. And, you know, and then that kind of comes together like that, you know, and, and so it's this calculus of who, like, who could I stand to, you know, to think about this intensely for this period of time. And is there space on the shelves? You know, does the market, you know, is someone going to want to give me money to do this? Cause you know, I, I still got to pay my rent and, you know, and put food on the table and send kids to college and all that, all that fun stuff. So, and then it's like, how do you, you know, it's like every, you know, it's like anyone's job. Every day is a little bit of a struggle. You know, some days are horrible and some days are great, you know, and it just sort of depends on the whims of the muse and your mood and your antidepressants or, you know, or what your therapist has to say and, you know, all that stuff. It, it, it all kind of comes together. I mean, I, my work, I feel like is weirdly visceral. You know, it's like if I'm in a particular, you know, like I can suddenly you know, it's like this combination of how much caffeine have I had and how much sleep have I had and how am I angry at somebody and can I channel these feelings into creativity and one, being able to think about something in a different way, you know, reading something and, and making connections and then having to sit down, you know, and fill in the empty computer screen, you know, and it's, it's, you know, and, and, and you don't want to romanticize it. it everyone's job is hard. Uh, brain surgery is hard. Um, a lot of stuff is hard. Digging ditches is hard. But it's like this particular challenge of this, it's like you, I kind of feel like, you know, you end up taking a paint scraper to your cerebral cortex and try to just scrape off an original thought or two. And at the end of the day, it's like, oh, my God, my head hurts. So... <laughs> Okay, so lots of Advil is what gets you through the night. Um, yeah. There's the Advil. Well, do, thank you for doing this. The book is awesome. It's definitely a moment in time um, where this great creative culture was built and um, the business model didn't necessarily suck to that was attached to it. Um, and some great artistry came from it. So I appreciate you kind of digging in and kind of telling that story. It was great for a guy like me to hear and read and kind of relive in some sections. So um, good. Well, I'm glad you like congrats it. Congrats on the book. Well, thank you very much. I mean, and coming from somebody who worked in the industry and, and understands it probably in a way in, in far greater depth than I do. It's nice to know that I managed to fake it well enough that you felt like, Hey, this is, this sounds like the truth. So. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thanks. Thank you so much, Peter. Stay healthy. You I'm too, looking man. forward to your next book. I love REM. So I'm excited. Me too. Me too. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Nick. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com 
theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week. 